0: That was Rod Stewart's The Motown Song, which should give you a hint where we are taking This Is Comp, a series of Discord and Rhyme minisodes where we crawl through various artist compilations song by song. I've never heard that song before, I mean.
1: <laughs> it's a really goofy and really fun song. <laughs> anyway, we haven't
0: done the roll call yet. I'm Rich Bennell and I'm here with... Phil Maddox. And Amanda Rogers. So it's time for a new compilation, and we've got a big one. That's right. It's Rod Stewart's Storyteller, the Complete Anthology, 1964-1990. Hell Woo! yeah. <laughs> no, what we're doing is the mammoth box set Motown, the complete number ones, which comprises Woo-hoo! every single number one hit that came from Detroit's Motown record label from 1960 to 2000. Uh, Amanda, you you suggested it. This is your project.
1: Uh, well, kind of. Um, well, it's our project, my, but. Yeah. And actually, my husband found it first. I have to give credit to him. Uh, he found this actually on Spotify. Uh, probably a year or so ago, maybe more. And it's just, it's really a fun compilation to turn on, like on a road trip or when we're barbecuing out on the back deck or whatever. And when we started doing the This Is Comp series, he said, hey, why don't you do that big Motown box set? And I was like, that is a really good idea. And luckily you guys thought so too. So thanks, Sean.
0: And we should clarify that it's not just number one hits on the Hot 100. It's also number one hits on the R&B charts. This this album
2: or slash box set has a very loose definition of what number ones are. <laughs> so I'll talk about this a little bit more later, but so for this compilation, their definition of a number one is anything that was either number one on any chart in any country. So if it was number one on the blues charts in Norway, it's here. It's here.
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
2: Also anything that was sampled. And a number one hit is here.
1: Oh, is that why Pastime Paradise is on here later on? That is why Pastime Paradise is on here.
2: Pastime Paradise by Stevie Wonder was not a single, but it was sampled by Coolio for uh, Gangsta's Paradise. And therefore, Pastime Paradise is on here. That's so interesting.
1: I wondered how that got on. Yeah, I wasn't sure because I only have this on Spotify. I don't have the liner notes or anything. I didn't really know what their methodology was.
0: Yeah, I didn't know the full scope of their methodology. Similarly, if a song was covered
2: and became a number one hit, the original is here. Ergo, Dancing in the Streets by Martha and the Vandellas only actually made it to number two on the Billboard Hot 100. But in the 80s, Mick Jagger and David Bowie got it to number one. So the original Martha and the Vandellas song is here because the cover got to number one.
0: So, Phil, why don't you give us a brief early history of Motown? With pleasure, Rich.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> So Motown Records was founded on January 12th, 1959 in Detroit, Michigan, by an African-American songwriter slash business entrepreneur named Barry Gordy. It was named Motown after Detroit being the Motor City. Motor City equals Motown. So when when Barry Gordy founded Motown Records, it was literally just a house. Specifically, 2648 West Grand Boulevard in Detroit. Where they took a house, they converted the garage into a recording studio and the kitchen into an office, and they did whatever they needed to do there. Just absolutely what people would consider today like extremely independent music that you wouldn't expect to get a large audience. But for Motown, for whatever reason, they really had their finger on the pulse of what people were interested in and cranked it out in this tiny independent studio.
1: Phil, if I can interrupt for just a second, since you've said where Motown was headquartered, can you tell us what the packaging of the box set looks like?
2: The box set is a replica of 2648 West Grand Boulevard in Detroit. So you see, you know, the Hitsville, USA banner. It's really kind of a cool little collectible. So if you're still interested in physical media, it's a nifty little thing to have in your house. So... After Barry Gordy started it, the label was hugely successful, one of the, if not the most successful African-American-owned and operated businesses in the country at the time. Barry Gordy ran Motown like an actual quote-unquote hit factory, where producers would meet on Fridays, submit their songs, and then everybody involved would vote on how they wanted to proceed. They were very focused on having widespread appeal and boy, did they succeed in their goal. They had tons of hits that were popular among both black and white audiences at a time when segregation was extremely widespread and accepted. So being very popular amongst like both black and white audiences in like 1960 was fairly unique.
1: That's revolutionary.
2: But in keeping with the hit factory quote unquote aspect of Motown – was that in any kind of factory, you need to have line workers, and in this case, that means musicians. Motown used a loose group of session musicians, informally known as the Funk Brothers, who played on a huge number of early Motown songs. It's hard to quantify who exactly the Funk Brothers were. According to the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, there were 13 quote-unquote official members, but really, it was just a catch-all term for whoever Session musicians were around that made the Motown magic happen. This is like a very stark contrast from, say, Stacks slash Volt Records, where the studio band was Booker T and the MGs, a group of you know four or five people who were always the same people playing on every record. The Funk Brothers were a lot looser. And I could talk about the Funk Brothers for a while because this is a very interesting topic, but if you want to know more... I would direct you to uh, the 2002 documentary, Standing in the Shadows of Motown, which is about the session musicians who played at Motown. And it has voiceover work by Andre Brower from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Captain Holt himself.
1: Oh, that's right. It did. That was a really good movie. I highly recommend it. In fact, I've been intending to watch it again. I just haven't gotten around to it yet, but very, very much worth seeing.
2: So anyway, Motown, people associate it with like a very specific set of hit singles and songs from the early 1960s. But Motown actually lasted a lot longer than most people would think. The label still exists even today, though these days it's a subsidiary of the Universal Music Group, and mostly exists to reissue existing music. The label was a vital force for a long time though well after the music that people associate with the quote-unquote Motown sound was no longer hip. Today, though, we're going to be talking about the early years, the songs and sound that most people associated with Motown. We're not going to get to it for a while if we get to it, because there's a there's 11 discs of this. But this compilation goes all the way up to the year 2000 with Erica Badu's Bag Lady, which was the last number one single released by Motown before it merged with Universal, at which point it was really no longer the same label.
0: So, Phil, the the name Universal raises the question, do, was the music lost in the fire? I don't oh. know
2: if the music was lost in the fire. That
0: would be the worst.
2: Yes, it would. If anybody listening to this doesn't know, there was a Universal Records fire that destroyed a great number of master tapes from a lot of musicians. Just tons. It was... Not really talked about, but unbelievably tragic. If you're a music fan,
1: yeah. Think of a musician; they were probably involved.
0: Yeah, I feel like every musician Wikipedia page I read has a section now saying their their master tapes were lost in the fire.
1: Mm -hmm. And the thing is that they were so poorly cataloged that nobody even knows what all was lost or what was even there to begin with. Right.
2: It's one of the biggest tragedies, you know. That doesn't involve like a loss of human life, just in terms Mm -hmm. of a loss of you know.
1: A loss of history culture, a culture. loss of art, yeah. Just a
2: huge loss. It like horribly depressing. Mm-hmm.
1: Anyhow. Oh, I also wanted to say, for those of you who started panicking when Phil said 11 discs, we learned a lesson from Nuggets, and we're not going to do them all at once. No. <laughs> we, we got so tired by the end of the Nuggets box, you guys probably did too. What we're going to do is cover this Motown box one disc at a time and put smaller one-disc comps along the lines of Pure Moods in between.
0: Yeah, we got a very cranky comment on Instagram about about Nuggets.
1: And honestly, that guy had a point. Yeah, <laughs> I love I our nuggets I episodes,
2: but I was tired by the end of Nuggets because oh, man. after four discs of Garage Rock, it's like, what am I going to say about this one?
1: Yeah, and the three of us were on the last Nuggets episode, and I think for half the songs, we were like, yep, this sure is a Nugget.
2: If you're anything like me, you've heard every song from the first four or five discs of this a zillion times. Mm -hmm. But by the time you get to the late 70s and the 80s, it gets a little bit dicier. I haven't heard a lot of the later songs, but I feel like some of these earlier songs are just really the backbone, at least for people in our generation. Everybody here at Discord and Pod is generally in the Xennial Oregon Trail generation of people who are in their (laughs) late 30s while this is recording-ish. And these songs were really the background of a lot of growing up for, I would speak for all of us, I think, that you've heard this. Yeah. I don't know how popular, how, not popular, but how well-known these songs are to younger generations just because- Oldies
1: Radio isn't really a thing anymore.
2: I was talking to my wife about some of these songs before we started recording today, and I- came to the conclusion that when we were born these songs were as old as limp biscuit songs are now yeah (laughs) yeah i
1: was once this was just a couple of years ago uh, i was listening to the backstreet boys uh, with my daughter and realized that you know this is the music that was popular in the early to mid 90s so to her the backstreet boys are what the temptations were to me when i was her age yep It's insane. Anyway, so at least speaking
0: for myself, I very much am still learning about Motown and its history. And one thing I wanted to note is that uh, in just a couple weeks, Amanda and I are going to be going to the Motown Museum in Detroit, at least as of the time of this recording. And so by the time of, I think, the third episode in this series, which Amanda and I are both on, we'll have already gone there. So we can report back on it.
1: We're going to know everything.
0: Yeah, it's going to be awesome. And we'll have just seen Rhiannon Giddens, too. So. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's a very podcast-themed weekend. It's going to be really fun. I'm excited.
0: Yeah, but uh, but anyway, like if any listeners have any other cool Motown tidbits or thoughts, don't hesitate to send them over to discordpod at gmail.com or just add us on Twitter yeah. at, Dis- at discordpod.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We know, I mean, this music is hugely, hugely popular. And a lot of you guys probably know a lot of trivia that we're not necessarily going to bring up, or we might not even know. So... Fill us in. Talk to us. We just, we love hearing from you guys, and we love talking about this stuff, so do it.
2: Send us an email, and if you bring up anything interesting, we will bring it up on a future episode. Absolutely. Fill
1: us in. The sheer
0: popularity of this music means that there's just tons and tons of information about all of it, so, like, to wade Mm -hmm. through, whereas with Nuggets, you can pretty much exhaust the information on a particular band pretty quickly.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So, one final piece of housekeeping before we get going here. About This set is that Motown was actually several labels that were all under the Motown umbrella. Motown and Tamla Records were the two most famous ones, but there were a ton of other record labels under Motown, such as Gordy, VIP, and Soul Records. They're all included here. Basically, anything that was under the Motown umbrella is included in this box set, not just things that were on quote-unquote Motown records. It was all the same label. Mm-hmm.
1: Tamla was the earliest, wasn't it? It was one of the very earliest ones. Because mm-hmm. if, if I I seem to recall, at least I got the impression that there were Tamla records before there were Motown labeled records. I just know I bought like
2: all the 70 Stevie Wonder reissues, and they're all heavily- Labeled Tamla. Mm. I don't know the specifics of how record label subsidiaries and such work, but mm-hmm. essentially, all these labels were just Motown. Yeah.
1: Well, and whenever you read about the Beatles, all the early, like the early imports that they were listening to in, you know, Brian Epstein's shop, were Tamla records. You hardly ever hear the word Motown; it's all Tamla.
0: Well, we can talk about Motown forever, but let's talk about Motown songs. Yeah, yes. let's do it. So Let's get to our first number one on the compilation. This is The Miracles with Shop Around.
2: When I became of age, my mother called me to her side. She said, Son, you're growing up now, pretty soon you'll take a bride. And then she said, Just because you become a young man now, there's still some. Th- I'll you.
1: All right, Shop Around was released in 1960, got to number one on the Billboard R&B and the Cashbox Top 100 Pop Charts, and was number two on the Billboard Hot 100, uh, so the very first Motown song to hit number one anywhere. It was also the first Motown song that got released in the UK on the Deca label, I think. Prior to this, there were some imports, uh, but this was the first one that was actually released there. Uh, the Miracles. They first formed as the Five Chimes in 1955, then changed their name to the Matadors. And then founding member Emerson Sonny Rogers was drafted in 1957 and sent overseas. So he was replaced by his sister Claudette, who later married Smokey Robinson. And this was when they also changed their name to the Miracles from the Matadors. And the group had a few lineup changes over the years, as Motown acts, you know, usually did. But the personnel for this song was Smokey Robinson singing lead. And the backup singers are Marv Taplin, Claudette Rogers Robinson, Pete Moore, Ronnie White, and Bobby Rogers, who was Claudette and Emerson's cousin. Now, I want to take note of Claudette Robinson in particular, because it was so rare for a woman to be included in a singing group with a bunch of men at the time. I can't think of any other Motown bands that...
0: Yeah, I was looking at the band picture today during research and I was was taken aback.
1: Yeah, it's surprising, isn't it? You don't expect to see that. Uh, Barry Gordy called Claudette the first lady of Motown because she was the very first woman signed to the Motown label in any capacity as part of a group or a solo artist. And this was back when it was just Tamla. Uh, The Miracles ended up having kind of a similar trajectory to the Supremes in that they started off as just the band with the one name and then eventually became Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and then Smokey struck off on his own after a while. Uh, These various incarnations had a ton of hits before the group finally dissolved in 1992. You can all probably name half a dozen Miracle songs off the top of your heads
0: well if you're like me you don't realize that they're all miracle songs until after the fact they're just all songs yeah, that's that the you thing. know
1: like if i were to play you these miracle songs you, everybody would be like oh yeah that one and that one and that one and that one but
0: they're not really united in sound really like no th- like you yeah. listen
1: to this and then say tears of a clown you wouldn't guess they were the same band
0: yeah we're gonna go on a journey with the miracles over the course of oh this yeah
1: call. and it's gonna be so great Uh, Smokey Robinson was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist in 1987, but the rest of the Miracles were not. And Smokey had only been recording as a solo artist for 14 years at that time. and The minimum is supposed to be 25. So the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was just out of its mind at the time. And Smokey Robinson was not happy about this. He campaigned for the rest of the Miracles to get inducted, but it didn't work. Uh, they were eventually inducted in 2012, along with several other backing groups that had been left out, including the Comets, the Crickets, and the Famous Flames, who were not inducted with Bill Haley, Buddy Holly, and James Brown, respectively. Which fact, is crazy. like that. Right? What that is wrong with the Rock Hall? Like, the Vandellas got in with Martha Reeves. I've, I've long since
2: stopped trying to make sense of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame politics.
1: It doesn't make any sense. The
0: Moody Blues got in. We forgive them forever.
1: At last. And now we can all stop paying attention because Def Leppard has also gotten in. (laughs) Anyhow, the Miracles had their first million seller with Shop Around, uh, which of course was also Motown's first number one hit, as you can tell by its placement on this comp. The songs are, I don't think we mentioned, uh, they're all in chronological order. I'm not sure if it's in the order they were released or the order they hit number one. Do you know, Phil? I do
2: not know. It's... The liner notes for this compilation are not as great as the ones for Nuggets. Mm. There's like three paragraphs of basic history from Smokey Robinson, and then just recording information for each song.
0: Mm. I believe it's the order they're released, but I think that those are roughly the same thing. Because from what I've noticed, they're sparsely placed enough that Mm -hmm. uh, there's not much chance of the two being different.
2: It's also the only way that would even make sense for this compilation, because if you're going to expand it to like, if there was a sample included, then it's a number one, then where Mm, would you include mm -hmm. Pastime Paradise by C.V. Wonder? Do you include it in 1977 slash 1978 when it was recorded? Or do you include it in the 90s when Coolio sampled it?
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. So it must be the order they were released. And so that's how you end up with like four Supreme songs in a row later on down the line. It's really cool. Um, oh, and also, I forgot to mention, Smokey Robinson was a producer with Motown, too. He was just very, very, very involved.
2: One of the big wigs. He wrote a lot oh, yeah. of songs. Even for songs that he was not personally involved in recording, he wrote a lot mm-hmm. of
1: them. Yeah, he yeah. had his finger in all the Motown pies.
0: Yeah, you'll, as you'll see very quickly, people show up in each other's stories all the time. Yeah. <laughs> all the time. I mean, why wouldn't they?
1: Right.
2: Motown was very much run like a factory. People mm-hmm. showed up on everybody else's tracks all the time. Whoever yeah. would work for this song showed up. If somebody from a different group wrote a song, the other bands would cover it. Like Whoever they determined would be the most commercially viable is how the recording shook out.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So Shop Around, what I like about the song is that it feels like a remnant of the 50s to me, which is kind of rare for oh, yeah. our town to me. Like, I would say that they established the the signature Motown sound pretty quickly with the Funk Brothers and everyone just by the next disc. Honestly, I would say that there are songs on it that I would say have the recognizable Motown sound to them. But I don't know, just just here you have a little bit of the past, uh, like kind of hanging on, which I like.
2: Mm-hmm. Most of what I know about this song is growing up in the 90s. This was a very, very common song in commercials. It was. People would... I looked before this episode because I couldn't remember what businesses actually used this song in in the 90s, but it was a lot of them. I found one that was Burger King. They had a new bacon cheeseburger, and the message was, you can shop around all you want, but you know that <laughs> if you come back here, our burger has the most beef. But it was a very common... I think like people at Motown, they'd pretty much license their songs to anybody. Yeah. And this one just naturally lended itself to commercials so a lot of people like me were probably most familiar with the song because of how incredibly frequently it was licensed
1: yeah well and that's that's the thing the fact that it and I should okay I'm gonna say up front that I love this song this is a fantastic song and nobody can tell me otherwise But the fact that it was used in so many commercials to encourage people to buy things kind of affirms the inherently insulting nature of the lyrics. Oh, yes. (laughs) Holy cow. We're like, oh, no, no, no. Women are not things you shop for. But, I, you know, I'm not even mad because the song is so good. I mean, after all, this mama told him.
0: It's weird, yeah. this would seem cute coming from a woman, I think, but it's kind of weird hearing a guy singing about going to the girls' store.
1: Yeah. Well, and you know, when I was little, uh, before I had any idea who Smokey Robinson was, I thought this was sung by a woman. I always thought it was sung
2: by a woman, too. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: It makes more sense. But the song is great. I mean, oh, it's not a, great a diss song. on it, really. Yeah, it, it's catchy, it's memorable, it has a fantastic melody, and Smokey Robinson is just such a wonderful singer.
0: Oh, and one last thing we were talking about how this song like hit the R&B charts and since this is such a chart specific compilation I think it's worth getting into just briefly exactly what R&B means cuz that name refers to a chart that name that whose name changed a lot
1: like it did wasn't it at this time still called the race records chart or something horrible like that
0: no it's easy at this point at the beginning of this comp the chart was hot r&b singles but um okay but from from the charts debut in 1942 until 45 it was the harlem hit parade um and then from 45 to 49 race records Uh, oh dear even as relatively recently as the 80s it was hot black singles until 1990 actually
2: Yeah, things weren't that much better for country music because country music for a long time was referred to as, quote, hillbilly music officially. Mm -hmm. So, yeah,
0: there's a lot of interesting like meta history to the naming of the charts and like, you know, what they represent. And a lot of there's a lot of race, there's a lot of race history tied into that. Uh, But anyway, that that should really shed some light on how important this particular set of songs uh, was getting just African-American music on the radio in the first place. It was rare for
2: African-American music to cross over to white audiences, but Motown had an unbelievably strong sense of how to do that, and they pulled it off consistently.
1: Yeah, and this song almost went all the way to the top. It was number two on the Hot 100, and it stayed at number one on the R&B chart for eight weeks, which is pretty impressive. And again,
2: this was a completely independent label. This was out of a house. It's really impressive when you think not just how successful this music was, but that this was... By modern standards, again, a completely independent label. These people were, you know, people in a house somewhere in Detroit. Mm-hmm. They turned their garage into a recording studio and cranked out an endless, like, array of huge hits.
1: Yeah. And it was very much a family business. Barry Gordy had a bunch of siblings, and they were all involved, too. Wow. It's so easy
0: to talk about Motown forever. But let's uh, let's get to a second song, though. This oh, is the – mark. Yeah. This is the Marvelettes with Please, Mr. Postman. I've never really concentrated on this song before really closely and that vocal is so ragged. Isn't it great? Please
1: Mr. Postman was released in August 1961 and was the first Motown single to hit number 1 on the Billboard Hot 100. Woo! And it also got to the top spot on the Billboard R&B chart because the song is amazing. The Marvelettes, yeah. The Marvelettes yeah. got started in 1960 when a bunch of girls in the glee club at Inkster High School in Inkster, Michigan decided to form their own singing group. Uh, the original group was Gladys Horton, who I I didn't write this down because I'm a jerk, but I'm pretty sure that's her singing the lead, uh, with Katherine Anderson, Georgiana Tillman, Juanetta Cowart, and Georgia Dobbins. In 1961, they entered a talent contest where the top three finishers would get to go audition for Motown, and they came in fourth. But their Glee Club teacher somehow talked the officials into letting the Marvels, as they were called then, to audition as well anyway. And obviously, it went very, very well. Barry Gordy thought their singing was fantastic, but he told them they needed a song. So Georgia Dobbins got in touch with a musician back in Inkster named William Garrett, who had a song called Please, Mr. Postman, that he hadn't quite finished yet. And he said, okay, you can use this as long as you give me credit for it if it turns out to be a hit. They say, okay, fine. So Georgia, who was probably all of, like, maybe 19 at the time, went home and finished up the song, and reworked it to sound like a modern teenage doo-wop number. And, you know, the rest is history. Only it isn't quite, because Georgia Dobbins's parents made her leave the group before they went back to Motown with the song that she had just helped write because they didn't want her performing in nightclubs. She was replaced by Wanda Young, and Barry Gordy then changed their name from the Marvels to the Marvelettes and signed them onto the Tamla label. Now, these kids, they're all still teenagers— when their song becomes this major smash hit and they all had to leave high school in order to perform it. So the label promises to get them tutors so they could at least finish their education, but that never ended up happening. And eventually the entire group was taken in by Esther Gordy Edwards, who was Barry's older sister. And she would like have them bust to their performance dates in these clubs and it it was this was insane. Times were weird back then. So they had a few more hits after this, most notably Don't Mess With Bill, but fairly quickly they were eclipsed by the other Motown acts. And they were at one point offered the song Where Did Our Love Go, but they turned it down in favor of another song called Too Many Fish in the Sea because they found that one just more appealing. So the Supremes ended up with a reject, and we all know how that went for them. I love Don't Mess With Bill. It is a good song. It's like, okay, I won't. (laughs) You've convinced me.
2: Prequel to I'm Just a Bill. (laughs) (laughs)
1: i've always wondered if this is the same bill from wedding bell blues
0: yeah when i was arts editor of my college newspaper i headlined a a feature about bill murray don't mess with bill (laughs) nice (laughs) that's all that's great
1: so the marvelettes uh, started to break apart in 1964 due to the members health and family issues and by 1970 they were done but fun fact two of them married members of the miracles and the contours the groups on either side of the song on the comp They were neighbors. Yeah. Um, I was honestly really surprised at how interesting and involved the Marvelettes' history history turned out to be. So in 1980, Gladys Horton re-entered the music scene. She was performing as Gladys Horton of the Marvelettes. But there was this real sleazy-sounding guy named Larry Marshak. He was the editor of Rock Magazine. And he had bought the rights to the Marvelettes' name when somehow Motown lost them. I don't know if they didn't renew the copyright. I don't really know how this works. But he had a few groups that he was billing as the Marvelettes, even though none of them contained a single actual Marvelette. And he actually pulled a similar stunt with the Drifters. But around this time, John Bauman of Shanana and Mary Wilson of the Supremes helped to get the Truth in Music Advertising Act passed. Which means that now in 33 states, it is illegal to use the name of a famous musical group if the people performing in it don't include at least one actual member of the original group. Wow, I think sha na Right? And Mary Wilson. Yeah, thank you very much, Mary Wilson. The Marvelettes have been nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice, but they didn't make it in either time. But they are in the Rhythm and Blues Music Hall of Fame. I mean, this is clearly a great song. Oh, it is amazing.
0: Yeah, this always kind of struck me as a bunch of kids, like, kicking Mr. Sandman up a notch.
1: Oh, yeah. I hadn't made that connection, but yeah, I see it. This was one of the early Tamla Motown songs that the Beatles got their hands on. And even though, you know, I've been hearing this song for as long as I can remember, I have to admit, I'm much more familiar with the Beatles cover. And listening to Gladys Horton's voice, you can totally understand why John Lennon wanted to sing this. They sound actually reasonably similar.
0: Well, Barry Gordy loved it that the Beatles liked to cover Motown songs because it
1: just Mm -hmm. dramatically increased their exposure. Yeah, it's true, and I really hope I don't know how the copy law copyright laws worked. But poor Georgia Dobbins, who was made to leave the group, I hope she at least made a fortune off all the covers and royalties for the people who have covered this.
2: I hope copyright, being what it is, especially
1: back then, I don't I know. It seems unlikely, but yeah, I associate
0: the deliver the de- letter part with Beverly Cleary's Dear Mister Henshaw, where <laughs> yes, it appears. Yep,
2: yep, 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 yep. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's interesting where these Motown songs, like, filtered down to us, like, in the 80s and early 90s. Mm-hmm. Well,
2: it's because people grew up with these songs in the early 60s, and they had internalized them, and they filtered that down into the children's entertainment they pushed on people in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Which is how it's I've so encountered poor Lee most
1: of wrote, put that in his letter, because he was mad that Mr. Henshaw wasn't writing him back. <laughs> I loved those books.
0: Yeah, this song is kind of just taken on a life of its own and becoming a meme. Like, it's, it was recently used. It was interpolated in um, the 2017 song Feel It Still by Portugal, the man, with periods. You know, the... Uh, why would I try to do oh. that? That song, you know, that... I
1: know that song, song, and I like that song, but I never noticed the Please Mr. Postman bit. I'm going to have to listen to it again.
0: This the whole song is basically just built on Please Mr. Postman, but it, I don't know. I consider huh. that I can I consider that song the first song to be actually native to the genre of Apple commercial music.
2: Yeah. I'd be shocked if I any song I can name from the last ten years is shocking to me.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> but let's go on to some other songs that are awesome. This is the contours with Do You Love Me? You broke my heart. Cause I couldn't dance. Me around, and now I'm back to let you
2: know I can really shake them down.
0: Love Me by The Contours was released in 1962, and it hit number one on the R&B chart, but only number three on the Hot 100. We'll see a lot of mismatches like that. The Contours were originally The Blenders, and they were formed in Detroit, I I guess a lot of these bands were, (laughs) we'll say if otherwise, but in 1959 by singers Joe Billingsley and Billy Gordon. They changed their name to The Contours, named after the recording studio Flick and Contour Records. And they quickly rounded up the lineup with singers Billy Hogs, Sylvester Potts, and Hubert Johnson, and guitarist Huey Davis. Though so, I don't know if Huey Davis was part of the Contours or if he was part of the was he part of the um, the Funk Brothers. I, I'm not really sure with the musicians. Nobody knows recordings. who's in
2: the Funk Brothers <laughs> except for yeah, James so
0: this kind of stuff can be really complicated. But anyway, the contours were actually turned down by Barry Gordy at their first Motown audition. But after paying a visit to Jackie Wilson, Hebert Johnson's cousin, and already an associate of Gordy's, they performed the, so- the same songs at a second audition for Gordy, who then signed them to a seven-year contract.
1: Networking! <laughs> Gotta pull them strings.
0: Yeah, Seriously. But after, after a couple of failed singles, Gordy had the band record Do You Love Me in 1962. Uh, on this recording, the band is rounded up by Funk Brothers' Joe Hunter on piano, James Jamerson on bass, and Benny Benjamin on drums. And you don't always get the credits for when the, which Funk Brothers are on, on which songs. It can be very confusing.
2: You usually <laughs> um, don't. Many of the original mm-hmm. releases did not have credits.
0: Yeah, well, it was just such a pressure cooker, like, just turning out hit, hit after hit. Like, didn't yeah. have time to write that down.
1: Yeah, I imagine they didn't keep very careful records at the studio. They did not. So the band and
0: Gordy differ on whether the song was originally meant for The Temptations. Gordy says that The Temptations were just nowhere to be found on the recording date, Uh, and he wanted to record this surefire hit as soon as possible. And yeah, this does sound like a hit to me, just absolutely. Billingsley said in a 2008 interview that the band was initially having trouble with the song and Gordy only briefly considered giving it to The Temptations, but I don't know, believe whoever you want. Who cares? So a lot of Motown songs are famous, but why, among all sixty songs, is this one so present in the mind of us ex annials Well, that's because it was featured in the nineteen eighty-seven movie *Dirty Dancing*, and it was sub- yeah, I great movie, and it was subsequently re-released as a single, and it charted again at number eleven on the Hot One Hundred. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so with two reigns as a hit, this instantly placed "Do You Love Me" into the nightmare hell that is the Boomer Canon, where it remains to this day.
2: Sitting alongside Bohemian Rhapsody after its reign, after Wayne's World.
0: Yes. Yeah, a lot of Motown songs are in that territory, unfortunately. I I still love this one in spite of that, but it's kind of hard to sometimes when, I don't know, when you just hear it around a lot.
1: Well, I I should say I have seen Dirty Dancing 7,000 times, (laughs) and the scene with the song in it is one of the best in the whole movie. I love that movie. It's so good. You should all watch it. I watched it for the first time, like, last year, and yeah, it's great. Really? i pretty primed
0: to love stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, So when we we were all growing up, this movie was featured in the movies Sleepwalkers and the Macaulay Culkin Ted Danson vehicle, Getting Even With Dad, which is yet another terrible 90s kids movie I've seen. I've seen that, (laughs) but I have not seen Dirty Dancing. I
1: have seen Dirty Dancing, but I have not seen Getting Even With Dad.
0: And There was also a 1988 Alvin and the Chipmunks cover version, which is, embarrassingly enough, the version that I primarily think of when I think of this song. <laughs> same for me. I don't think I know it. It was in a commercial I saw a lot. Uh, and there was also oh a 1992 goodness. Tiny Toon Adventures music video, which was in the same series of episodes that introduced me to They Might Be Giants. So thank you, Tiny Toons.
2: Yeah, I remember that as well. A lot of my childhood was spent watching Tiny Toon Adventures.
1: This is a fun song. And it's another one that I really should be sick of because it's been everywhere forever. But it's just that spoken intro is just, it's so confident. Like he is owning this song right from the get go. And then, you know, the band comes in and, you know, James Jamerson is one of the legendary bass players of the world. And it's great that he's actually credited on the song because he's so good. And The whole arrangement, the whole song is energetic and it's fun. And you just want to do all these dances that he mentions, whether you know how to or not. And that is exactly what you should do. Everybody should get up and dance whenever Do You Love Me comes
0: on. I will say that dancing seems like a flimsy requirement for something as profound as love to me. But I don't know. Also, even I can do the twist. That's the
1: point. Yeah, everybody can do the twist. I don't don't know what the mashed potato is, though. I don't either. I know that is an actual dance that exists, but I don't know how it goes. Mm -hmm. I assume
2: that it just means that you, like, get on the floor and congeal into a pile.
0: Yeah, it could be. I think that is what it is, yeah. Well, that sounds Mm -hmm. easy, too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, in the 60s, you know, going out dancing was a big deal. So, you know, if you want to... Like have a relationship with somebody and you really like dancing and this person can't dance, I can see that being a deal breaker. Do the Charleston on top of a telephone pole? That's true. I'm looking at I'm looking
0: at it through my 2019 lens. I I only jitterbug like maybe twice a week maximum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're cool, you guys.
2: Are we still doing the Macarena? Is that a thing?
1: Do we have anything else on? Do you love me? I do not. I don't think I'm astonished that they didn't name check the Macarena in this song
0: yeah what, what's up with that uh, so let's go on to mary wells with you beat me to the punch The Punch was released in 1962 and hit number 9 on the Hot 100 and topped the R&B charts. That's how it got on this compilation. Mary Wallace isn't frequently mentioned among the top tier of Motown megastars, but she was Motown's first star, that uh, many say that, and helped get the label and just African-American music in general onto the charts. So... After singing in nightclubs as a teen, just developing her voice at church, uh, and then leaving school at 17, Wells set her sights on writing songs for, once again, local hero Jackie Wilson.
1: I like Jackie Wilson.
0: Yeah. In 1960, Wells got her chance when she was introduced to Barry Gordy at a Detroit nightclub and asked if if he could pass along her song Bye Bye Baby to Wilson. Uh, He asked her to sing it right then and there, and she did. She just did it. Gordy was impressed uh, and instead of passing along the song, Gordy just straight up signed her as a performer and Bye Bye Baby became a top 50 pop hit under her own name.
1: That is very cool.
0: Yeah, so Wells released a few follow-up singles that performed disappointingly on the charts. Uh, so then Motown re- recruited Smokey Robinson to compose for her, and he cooked up "The One Who Really Loves You" um, and this song, and which both hit the pop top ten. But this is the only one to top the R and B charts, uh, and this one also earned a Grammy nomination for best rhythm and blues recording. So, what do you all think? So,
2: so this is one of the first songs on this compilation, one of the few songs on the early couple discs that i actually did not know before hearing this compilation i didn't know the other mary wells song coming up later this episode either
1: i knew this one but not the next one so i guess mary
2: wells just hasn't reached the same level of pop culture ubiquity as a lot of the other artists and songs here
1: with one exception she has one song that everyone knows coming up a few episodes down the pike
0: (laughs) what will it be
1: but as for this
2: song I don't get why it's less well-known because it's of a comparable quality to you know the other songs around it. It's a very catchy, of its time, pop song. I can totally understand why this was as big as it was.
1: I can understand why it was big at the time, but I can also understand why it hasn't really endured the way stuff like Shop Around and Please Mr. Postman have. Uh, This is the first one on the comp that I just don't really like. And it got me thinking about... How much you can actually distinguish the various Motown acts because most of them didn't write their own songs, at least most of the time. It just kind of depended on what act got assigned which songs. So you kind of have to go by like how much you enjoy their their personalities or their singing style or whatever. But I realized for some reason Mary Wells just didn't get didn't tend to get assigned songs that appeal to me personally. And you know, she's, she's obviously a wonderful singer. I really enjoy her voice, but the song to me seems like just kind of a dud. It's, I find it a little boring and a little too repetitive, and it doesn't have much of a memorable hook to me. Um, and it's kind of a shame that like the majority of her songs that I know are like that. So I think that's maybe, except for, you know, that one exception, it's coming up later. So, it, I mean, it's kind of a Obviously, not everybody agrees with me, but I think it's kind of interesting and kind of a shame that, you know, the songs that she got handed were the ones that just didn't really stick around in the world's consciousness. I mean, it clearly wasn't a bad decision because this was a
2: number one R&B hit, but oh, yeah. it has been a little bit more forgotten,
0: certainly more forgotten than a lot of the other songs on this episode. Well, mm-hmm. I, sh- well I should say this-, this is a good opportunity to... Like, report how I initially got into Motown, which was the, uh, it wasn't this compilation, it was the Hitsville USA 1959 to 1971 four-disc set, uh, which is also chronological, and it's a good companion set to this one. Um, And and this song is also on it, as well as the following song, and so there's there's a good, like, selection of Mary Wells on there. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so I was familiar with this one already, and uh, honestly, going back to it, these Mary Wells songs are a lot more upbeat than I remembered. I remember them being kind of like ballady, but there's like, especially on this one, there's a really great arrangement by the Funk Brothers that livens it up. I, I like that you can always mm-hmm. just say "by the Funk Brothers" and it's right.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I'm not sure if I expressed myself as well as I meant to earlier regarding like, like I don't mean to say that the Motown acts are interchangeable because they're not. But it also – just because of the way the label was run, it's a little weird to say – well, not weird, but it's a different situation to say something like, oh, I really love The Temptations or The Four Tops or The Miracles. Well, I guess not The Miracles so much because Smokey Robinson wrote a lot of their songs, but – You can see I'm getting very mixed up, but just because of the nature of that label, it's like they had this stable of singers that got assigned, okay, I think you'll do a good job with this song, and I think you'll do a good job with that song, but they weren't necessarily developing their sound themselves.
0: Yeah, and, and as we'll see, the different Motown vocal acts, even though it was a lot of the same musicians playing on them, it definitely had like a distinctive identity that just came Mm -hmm. through in the songwriting, no matter who was playing on it.
1: Yeah, and the the singers are very... Like, you can tell the difference between The Temptations and The Four Tops, you know, just from the way they perform. So in that sense, it absolutely makes sense to say, you know, just I love the way The Temptations sing or the way The Four Tops sing or whatever. So like I said, I don't think I'm making my point very well, but I hope you guys at least understand sort of what I'm trying to express. (laughs) No, I totally get it. It was a real problem in
2: Motown because they really didn't want... Too much individualism yeah. with their performers. Kind of notoriously, when Marvin Gaye recorded What's Going On in the early 70s, mm. Barry Gordy didn't want to release it because he thought it was too uncommercial.
0: Yeah, I would say Mary Wells is an actor who, who she's very important, and she has like several yeah great Motown hits that I like, but I would never rank her among my favorite Motown acts. It's just it, mm-hmm. it, there, there are just so many in the running. Yeah, early
2: Motown and, is very singles oriented and very yeah. based around how much you like the general sound of the label.
1: And that yeah, and that's the thing. I saw a tweet not that long ago uh, from somebody uh, being a little bit finger waggy. And kind of reminding the world that Motown is a label, not a genre. And I read that and I thought, okay, you know, you have a point. That is technically correct. But shush, it is too. Well, and like
0: you said earlier, like you have stacks where the house band was just literally always Booker T and the MGs. You're going to have like a house sound sometimes.
1: Yeah. And and that's the thing. Like they were deliberately aiming for a house sound because that was they figured out that was how they were going to be commercially successful. And it worked. Obviously, I mean that house sound is amazing. I think one of the interesting things about this set is that as it
2: progresses, you can hear certain artists, notably Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder, start to break out of the Motown hit factory sound.
1: Yeah, I was thinking of Stevie Wonder too and you mentioned Marvin Gaye. They were the they were the two that went rogue.
0: Yeah, we're gonna be unveiling some of these histories a little slowly because some artists will just appear over and over and over mm-hmm. again over the course of decades. Yeah. Spoiler alert, Stevie Wonder shows up a
2: lot.
1: <laughs> okay, Nobody saw that coming. Let's get to another Mary Wells song. Yeah, see, these because they're in chronological order, they we got two Mary Wells songs in a row. Well, we got we gotta to listen to them while we still have them. So yeah.
0: this is two lovers. Meat and veggie. <laughs> Uh, 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 was released in 1962 and <laughs> number seven on the Hot 100 and number one on the R&B charts.
1: We <laughs> <So, laughs> all got Sesame Street on the brain. <laughs> and they're
0: gonna come. And they're gonna come back in this episode. <laughs> so this is Walls' third collaboration with Smokey Robinson, co-written with Ron White of The Miracles. Not the uh, one they call Tater Salad. <laughs> I was just thinking
1: about. That. <laughs> I was drunk in private. You threw me into public.
0: (laughs) 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 So Robinson was inspired apparently by an old movie he saw on TV. I don't know which one. And he told Mojo, quote, this woman had these two men that she loved. And see, people think that love is exclusive. How can you love somebody else if you love this person? That's just the way love is. Love doesn't have no boundaries, no formulas, and no rules. Love doesn't know what. So I thought, okay, she's got these two lovers. She loved them both. And in the movie, I think one guy died or something, but I thought about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what if she has two lovers, but they're the same person? So I wrote the song. So Smokey Robinson scooped Fight Club.
1: But That's also invented polyamory. Spoiler as it rich. Says.
0: <laughs> oh, sorry. So, the song became Wells' biggest hit to date with help from the Motortown special, which launched three days before the song came out um, and eventually became the Motortown Review. So, what is that, you say? So, Gordy noticed that a lot of Motown acts were playing the same venue in Chicago, and he cooked up the idea of bundling together just a bunch of acts into this intense two-month tour that just toured around the Midwest and the South, primarily along the Chitlin circuit in a lot of cases, because there were a lot of places that weren't safe for them to play in the South. Um, And they played they played like a a week at the Apollo as well in New York. Uh, And so this tour strategy is actually credited with spreading the Motown sound across just a very regionalized radio landscape. Like we didn't have Spotify back then. (laughs)
1: Right. And DJs had a lot more autonomy back then.
0: Yeah. I remember I remember it came up over and over again in the Nuggets episode that oftentimes a song would be a huge regional hit and just go nowhere on the Hot 100. Yeah. And so like this is how Motown became famous is they took everybody out on tour.
1: That's really smart.
0: Yeah. Uh, anyway, as for the song itself, you you very rarely get a song with a twist these days. Um, I I, w- I wonder if Psycho had like dissociative identity disorder on everyone's brains. It was famous at the time.
1: Was that the movie that Smokey Robinson saw? Probably not. Oh,
0: I, I guess I'm just spoiling a bunch. <laughs> I'm just spoiling a bunch of old movies
1: today, huh? If people don't know what Psycho's about by now, then that's their problem.
2: This song says the word love so many times that it makes me think of this sketch on Mystery Science Theater 3000, where they sang a song called When Loving Lovers Love, and the joke was that every other word was love. I could not get that out of my head while listening to this song. Again, this is another one. I did not know it before getting this compilation because it hasn't really... Endure the way a lot of the other songs here have it's fine but i get why it's not as famous as you know its cousins on this compilation
1: yeah i didn't know this one either and i really don't like it i skip it almost every time i listen to the comp it's just i don't know it's kind of boring and i also just this is purely a personal quirk i despise the word lover i think
2: liz lemon said best Uh, As the the same joke I made earlier, somebody said the word lover, and Liz Lemon on 30 Rock said, ooh, I hate that word, unless it's between the words meat and pizza.
1: (laughs) I remember that, and I thought, Liz, (laughs) you read my mind.
0: (laughs) Oh, I forgot my night cheese for this recording. (laughs) The flavor of
2: loneliness.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, we've talked about Mary Wells a bunch. Are we done with two lovers? I think we are. Okay, let's go back to the miracles with You've really got a hold on me
1: Yes, please
0: You've Really got a Hold On Me was released in November 1962, and it hit number eight on the Hot 100 and number one R&B. So uh, the song was written by Smokey Robinson, and the Miracles would close Motor City Review shows with this because it was the label's biggest hit at the time. But where I'm going to go with this is because of when we all grew up, I figure we're just going to spend this whole time talking about the Sesame Street video. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, which aired in 1985. Uh, yeah, it yep. was great. It, Smokey Robinson sang the song, and the letter U, You've Really got a Hold On Me, is just trying to grab him the entire time. That, that U was him. all over Smokey Robinson. It
1: was. That U was very handsy. Yeah, it, it kind of
0: scared me at first because the U kept grabbing yeah. him like he was trying to swallow and smother him. It was one of those like semi-traumatizing early experiences.
1: Oh, yeah. A few years ago, I actually I ran across that video and had a major nostalgia attack, and I shared it on Facebook, and a friend of mine was like, how could you do this to me? Because apparently that video just scared the crap out of her when she was a little kid in the 80s. But you really got a hold on me. <laughs> it's a great song. Oh, it's so good. Smokey so
2: Robinson's good. vocal performance is spectacularly good. Oh, my word. Yeah.
1: I have to admit, though, this is another Motown song that, while I know this one extremely well... I know the Beatles cover better, which is actually oh, yeah. on the same album where they covered Please, Mr. Postman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Which is a fairly weak Beatles album overall, but some good covers. Anyhow, this is not actually an episode about the Beatles. But it, at the same time, though, it's hard to figure out what to say about You've Really got a Hold On Me because, I mean, you guys all just heard the song. You know how good it is. It's great. Mm-hmm. If you haven't heard
0: it, like, go listen to it.
1: Go, go find that Sesame Street video, which features Smokey Robinson singing this wonderful, wonderful song.
0: A totally 80s Smokey Robinson.
1: Yeah. We will post it on Twitter and Facebook, actually, be- so you can all be traumatized by the letter U feeling up Smokey Robinson seemingly <laughs> against his will.
2: Smokey Robinson is not happy about the situation.
1: He's not. He's trying real hard to get away. Okay,
0: let's finish off this
1: set with little Stevie Wonder.
0: Fingertips. Part 2. I walk alone, lonesome corridors. Finger fingertips. <laughs> Finger tits. say see ya. Yeah!
2: See ya. yeah. See ya.
0: fingertips was released in may 1963 and it topped both the hot 100 and the r&b charts and good news if you want to know more about stevie wonder we've got a whole episode about his 1976 album songs in the key of life and
1: it's one of our longest ones so there's plenty of information there for you
0: which means that we don't really have to give a history because we already did that before we can just outsource it to our episode or, uh, so go your <laughs> not on
2: this episode, but John McFerrin has done a huge page on Stevie Wonder over at John McFerrin's music review, so you can read a ton there, too.
0: Oh, yeah. But he was a little kid at this point, and uh, but this was actually recorded in Chicago in an early Motortown review performance, and it shows Stevie being both a musical genius and a brat.
1: He was, and it's so wonderful. Yeah,
0: it's great. Uh, this The song was meant to showcase Wonders Talents on the bongos and the harmonica, and it comes from a song on his album, The Jazz Soul of Little Stevie. It's just an instrumental. Um, and the song concluded his set at the Motortown Review, and uh, the last minute or so of the song is Stevie rushing back onto the stage and playing an encore for another minute, because <laughs> he didn't want to go to bed.
1: He's a 12-year-old kid, and he wants to stay up late, so he just extends his concert by Continuing to play the harmonica, because that's a thing that 12-year-olds do. Yeah, and they can't do anything, because
0: the crowd is eating it up. They love it. Um, and yeah, like, you
1: can hear it on the recording. Everybody is loving every second of this.
0: Yeah, and uh, and so the the bass players had already switched out for the following act, which was the Marvelettes, and so like, bass player Larry Moses had been replaced by Joe Swift, uh, so you can hear him asking what key it's in. Yeah. Yeah, so it's th- this is so good. I I mean I mean it's it's a wonderful story. It's really fun to listen to, but it's just like such like just an example of what a ball of energy Stevie Wonder was.
1: Yeah, it's so he he's rebelling and, you know, staying up past his bedtime and he turns it into a number 1 hit.
2: So this is fun. But the question is, how fun is this if you don't know about little about little Stevie Wonder or his history right. or his age? Just, like, Uh, listening to this song in a vacuum.
0: Yeah, this is definitely a case where, like, knowing the full story enhances it a lot. I always just thought of this as, like, this, like, I don't know, uh, it's a wonderful story, but I was wondering what about it made it top the charts musically. Mm -hmm.
2: It it feels like a bizarre goof. The kind of thing that would be on one of those early Beach Boys albums to fill up some space, but somehow it was a number one.
1: Well, and one of his stalling tactics was playing Mary Had a Little Lamb. (laughs) on the harmonica <laughs>
2: but this is this is <laughs> so barely great. a song this is just this is just a kid messing around with a band it's cool that yeah. it was a number one hit it's an interesting little piece of history mm-hmm. but that's entirely what it is it's a cool little piece of history where you can see it's this true. is where stevie wonder got his start but yeah it's a would anybody cite this as one of their top 50 stevie wonder songs
1: no, but the thing is, like, in you're right, you're totally right, but that in a vacuum, this is not really that awesome to listen to. But in context, knowing that it was a 12 year old kid who whipped up this crowd into such a state of excitement that he could riff on Mary Had a Little Lamb on his harmonica, and everybody loves it and they don't want him to leave the stage because he's so good so young it's just crazy
2: that this song which is let's be honest here it's fun but it's a novelty hit it's a kid screwing yeah. around on stage yeah,
0: totally it's true but
2: it's within like a few years he would be recording superwoman and living for the city and all this amazing music and it's just crazy mm-hmm. to think has there ever been an artist Whose early work and later work showed such a difference in level of maturity, because there ain't Mm -hmm. this much difference between Please Please Me and Abbey Road.
0: Well, speaking of novelty hits, uh, so one thing that's fun about this compilation, since everything is chart music, is that you can check what else was on the charts in Billboard's archives. And uh, I mean, the charts were pretty light this week. And most weeks, honestly, this was this was above both Wipeout by the Safaris. uh, Yeah, that Wipeout um, and Peter, Paul and Mary's cover of Blowing in the Wind.
1: Wipeout was also in Dirty Dancing, by the way.
0: Did did Dirty Dancing just make a bunch of songs famous again, and that's why we heard them a million times? It like,
1: might have.
0: I mean, I love Dirty Dancing, but Hey, it also had She's Like the Wind. I also enjoy Dirty Dancing.
2: I also understand there's a movie by that title. <laughs> oh,
0: Phil, you're always out dirty dancing. <laughs>
1: Anyhow, Stevie Wonder is amazing. Is the point we're trying to make here, and was amazing right from the beginning. This
2: ain't his greatest song, but it's fun. No. It's an interesting piece of history, and it's got a little bit of extra juice to it if you love Stevie Wonder's later stuff, as I think all of us do. And we're gonna yeah. hear from,
0: and we're gonna hear from him again and again and again. He topped the charts a bunch of times in the seventies, oh, yeah. including on songs and, and in the it- key of life. So we're gonna double cover some of those songs. Yeah. Turns and out Stevie right Wonder was real talented. It's fine. I, I never yeah, got a chance knew? to talk about Sir Duke. So, Oh,
1: yeah. 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 But I mean, honestly, hearing this evidence of what a good performer he was right off the bat really helps you understand how he was able to talk Barry Gordy into letting him write and record music on his own terms at a better royalty rate. But that's a story for another episode. Which we've already done. Thanks, Ben. <laughs>
0: Yeah, thank you, Ben. So let's roll some credits.
2: What do you call this record with all these songs? This is Comptroller.
0: Thank you for listening to This Is Comp, part of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. This closing theme is performed by Kenneth Crayley, and you can hear his music at Kenneth Crayley. that's K-R-A-Y-L-I-E, dot com, and his band Casinos at casinos.bandcamp.com. Music for the theme was originally composed by Andy Partridge of XTC, with new lyrics by Adam Smith of the Hector Collectors. Visit our website discordpod.com for more info about the show and a list of upcoming episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at discordpod, Follow me at Zonetrope, follow Amanda at MagneticInk67, and follow Phil at P.A. Maddox. See you for the next set of Motown, and be ever wonderful.